Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. All right, guys, we have a great show lined up for you all today. We have Mr. Robert Teague of Green Room Technologies. He's the chief medical officer there. He and his colleagues help early stage companies and others to turn good ideas into good business. They specialize in business viability, working with health tech firms who have software and medical device products or services. Their entire focus is either startup to series A or more mature companies who want to enter the healthcare market. They focus on market and technology readiness and bring value with interoperability solutions, market growth acceleration, and enhanced investment potential. When Robert first graduated from college, entrepreneurial business was about the furthest thing from his mind. He didn't come from that background as a kid, and he was going to medical school. When you get on the medicine train, you go where the train goes until you're ready to get off. It's a highly structured path like a train track. Robert landed in Houston, Texas at Baylor College of Medicine in the ever-impressive Texas Medical Center for postgraduate training in internal medicine and pulmonary medicine in which he is board certified. He stayed in academic medicine for the next 10 years, practicing academic pulmonary and critical care and doing academic things. But it was in this time that he first began to understand the technology of the day and to see where it was headed. It was about that time the personal computer was making its first splash in the market. He merely followed the electrons. So guys, let's give a warm welcome to Mr. Robert Teague. Let's go. today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm great, Don. How are you doing? Very well, very well. Good to, good to hear you. <laughs> Likewise. So I guess it's, um, what is it, about 7 p.m. over there, right? Exactly. How was your day today? Pretty productive? My day was terrific. Yeah, it was productive. We, uh, we've been working on a number of different um, communication pieces and uh, I've been writing a lot, which I enjoy, so so that was good. Okay, excellent. All right, so Bob, why don't we jump into things? So, so Bob, you have an amazing backstory that I love reading about, and I know for sure there must be a an amazing book there if you're not already pinning one. Are are you working on a book right now, or have you written any books before? I uh, have not written a book. I I write a lot, but I've never gathered it together in a book. Okay, just journaling and things like that? Uh, yeah, and, and you know, pu publishing here and there. Um, and lots of blog, lots of blog writing, lots of, uh, lots of social media communication. Okay, yeah, we'll have to connect on social media as well. All right, so um, Bob, why don't you tell the listeners a bit, a bit about your, um, your younger days, where you grew up, your siblings, if any, parents, and how you were growing up as a child. I especially like that last part, how I was as a child. 
I'll give you my version. Good thing my mom's not around. <laughs> set me straight. Anyway, I was born and raised in Charleston, West Virginia. Um, my father was a chemical engineer and worked at Union Carbide. Just a little side story. Uh, at the time, Union Carbide was a member of the Dow Jones Industrials. Hard to believe, like whatever happened to them, right? And, um, but, but had been founded near Charleston, West Virginia. Um, sort of one of those little known but true factoids. And um, my mother was a musician, uh, medical administrative type worker, was a medical assistant, did a lot of billing and all that sort of thing. Uh, I think had she lived in a different time and place, she would have been a physician. That was really her passion. <laughs> um, I was a third of four children. Uh, I had two older siblings, one younger. Um, I view my upbringing pretty much mid 20th century, middle class, leave it the beaver kind of thing. Uh, we lived in the burbs, nothing particularly special. <laughs> nothing special happened out there. It was a great place to grow up though. It was in the hills, lots of woods, lots of uh, outside activities. Um, I was pretty undistinguished as a kid, I think. Uh, I wasn't really ever seeking the spotlight and didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I did well in school, which led me to the next level. So that's, that, that worked out okay. Um, I think I, wa I was then who I am now, pretty much curious, bookish, active, independent, musically inclined, uh, on my own a lot, and uh, living at the edge of social acceptability, at least in my mind. Okay, and so, um, so you mentioned music. What, what instruments did you play? Uh, so I started out, my first instrument was piano. My mom was a musician. She and she insisted that we uh, learn piano and medical and, and mu musical theory before we went on to something else. I uh, then played trumpet, which was my primary instrument for a number of years and eventually uh, took up most of the brass instruments and eventually then moved on to guitar and, you know, other banjo, other other string things until I just gave it up. I, I don't know. At one point, I just ran out of interest. Yeah, I played around with the tuba in junior high. It was actually pretty good. But getting to high school, I guess I was, I called myself too cool for that. So I gave it up. <laughs> Got that. All right. So how and when did you become interested in medicine? I mean, was it, was it an event or a person that got you interested? How did that come about? Yeah, well, interesting. Um, medicine for me has always been an intellectual curiosity. Um, it was, it's not a passion. It's not a calling. There wasn't one of those lightning strike moments or a desire to save the world, all that sort of stuff. But I did like the interface. I liked the idea of the interface between science and human need. So that was, uh, if I could sort of say there was a focal point, that it was that. Uh, as a child as a kid i tested my curiosity around medicine with, with my friends whose whose parents were were physicians um and that was interesting i had a couple of very good friends whose fathers were doctors and uh spent spent considerable time sort of observing their families um and uh and of course my mom was sort of in the biz so you know i had that i had that insight from her perspective when I went to college, I actually started majoring in pre-med. Didn't really like it that much, so I switched to zoology. <clears throat> um, I really liked the basic sciences, 
and I probably would have stayed there, um, except something happened along the way called the military draft. So uh, I thought going to medical school seemed like a better option than Vietnam. So um, you could say that the military draft was my conversion moment. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, you'd probably be in a whole different place if here at all had you gone the other route, right? Well, that was my view. There weren't too many options at that point. So, um, you know, I had, it wasn't like medical school was a new idea, right? Uh, I, I, I had already sent away for applications and, and had already taken the MCATs and those things. So in case I wanted to pursue that option, I could. So literally my, my draft number was 39, which took about 30 minutes to happen. And the, there was a televised thing. I don't know if you know anything about how this went down, but bunch of old, bunch of old ball headed dudes with a, with a uh, spinner with balls in it would pull a ball out one at a time. And when your birthday came up, it, it was assigned a number. And the lower your number, the more likely you were to be drafted. So uh, I got 39, I was drafted. I, 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 I was only on my first beer, by the way, I was watching this thing. And um, so I went over to my desk, pulled out, you know, dusted off those, uh, uh, you know, medical school applications that I had sent away for and started filling them out. <laughs> so your number did come up in the draft? It did, yeah, I was gone. Uh, as soon as I graduated, I, w I was gone. Yes, yeah, interesting. I never did, I never knew that, that process until actually last week I was watching the most recent season of This Is Us and I saw them going through that same scenario. They have to, he's at the bar with his brother and they're watching on TV and they're calling the birthdays and I'm like, Wow, is that how they did it? So, yeah, quite interesting. <laughs> it was bizarre. And, and in the first year, because they, they needed a large number of draftees in the first year, um, I think they took down to about 285, almost 300. Wow. All right. And so um, what were you specializing in after you, after you finished med medical school? <clears throat> Well, so, you know, after medical school, um, you know, you go to do postgraduate training in something, right? So mm -hmm. uh, I went to do, I went to Baylor in Houston to do internal medicine, uh, which is a three-year training program. And then I subspecialized in pulmonary medicine, which is uh, additional two years at that time. Okay. All right, so I was reading your story. So you, you finished medical school and you're in Houston at Baylor. And I understand you get a call from, from a colleague about co-founding the pulmonary home care startup or business. So what, what, what went through your mind when he offered, when he offered you that opportunity? <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, <clears throat> that's just one of those things that happens, right? So, um, so after five years of training, I stayed on at Baylor College of Medicine on the faculty. And this was maybe about my second year out of training. Uh, I literally was in the clinic one day, I get this phone call from a, from a guy I knew, a colleague in the community. And uh, he wanted to start this pulmonary home care company. Uh, of course, I was intrigued. I mean, I, I, I liked the guy, respected the guy that was talking to me. I, and I understood the need. and sort of his vision for uh, how he saw going about solving, uh, getting, 
getting patients at home uh, better care. Um, at the time, pulmonary patients were cared for primarily by welding supply companies. I mean, literally a guy in a truck with a bunch of tanks on the back of it would drive up to the patient's house and unload a few tanks on the front porch of oxygen and, and leave them there. That was home care back in the day. So, uh, you know, we thought we could do better. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, when he called up, um, I didn't know anything about business. I mean, I've been at school for 21 years. <laughs> so, uh, but, I, and I didn't know enough to say no, that's for sure. So, uh, uh, I had been given some management tasks along the way and in, in, in my medical training and at early days of faculty world and, and actually did well with it and realized I sort of had a knack for that kind of thing. So I said, what the heck, let's go for it. What could go wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is something you just said is really interesting. You said, you know, I didn't know anything about business. I had been in school for 21 years. So that, that's quite telling as well, right? You, I guess I, I know a lot of people think, you know, you go to school and you come out and yeah, you know, everything you need to know about business, if you, especially if you had high, higher education, but that's rarely the case, right? Especially in medical school. I mean, <laughs> they don't even teach you how to like, you know, write a check really. I mean, <laughs> you're, so, you're so submerged in, you know, medical detail uh, the volume of, of factual information that, that physicians learn and have to keep in their minds is huge. It's, it's a huge amount of information and you have to be able to draw on it uh, all day, every day. So yeah, no, you don't, no, you don't learn about business. <laughs> and just a, just a sidetrack for a minute. So you mentioned yeah, all the information that you guys had to keep in your head. But do you think that's changed now with all the, with all the technology and contraptions and pieces we have to help help us keep track of data? Do you think um, they have it a little easier as far as having to memorize so many things? Hmm, that's a good question. So there may not be as much memory required, but uh, we're in very, very early days of the application of uh, digital technology and call it whatever you want, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and uh, decision support. We're in very early days. So physicians very much still must rapidly assemble and integrate, uh, synthesize, and come to conclusions about problems and prescribe therapies as much as they ever did. In fact, now it's more complex. But to the point, yes, there is better point of care uh, factual information delivery. In fact, in some ways, it's too much, right? I mean, the, the original design of uh, electronic health records and, and other things were really not meant to support physician workflow, and they don't very well. So um, physicians struggle with that, and sometimes you get way too much information, way more than you need. And um, I used to always say, look, you know, don't show me something unless you, unless you want something from me, right? You want me to make a judgment. You want me to do an action. You want me to make a decision, but don't just show me data, right? Just, you know, give me the things that I need to, uh, to do the work that we do. All right. Yeah. And another thing I just popped in my mind, I guess the patients now have access to so much data as well. So I'm sure they're coming in with their own self-diagnosis that probably makes it a lot more tedious or 
complicated for the doctors as well because they have to have to manage that aspect of it as well, huh? That you do have to do that, but um, I don't know. I guess my view. I, I really never mind anybody getting themselves educated, especially about their own problem. Uh, now you know you do have to have boundaries. You have to come to a, an agreement about you know how we're going to use that information, but. Uh, and, and then that either determines whether you'll go forward together as a team or not. But, um, but yeah, I, a lot of people complain about that. I, I never did. I, I'm, I'm fine with that. Okay. And so, it's, and your colleague that brought this opportunity to you, was he a doctor or was he already um, in business as well? So he knew a little more about business. Yeah, no, he was a physician. He didn't. He didn't know anything about business either. I thought he did. I mean, he, he sort of held himself out that he did, but in the end of the day, he did. He did. Okay, so so how was that process getting getting started with the business, getting customers? How did tell me tell me about that? How how easy or how difficult was it to get accounts or customers? You know, um, so. The way we did it back then was all of our investors were physicians who had a need, who had a patient need that we were filling. So between those sources of, of uh, patients and uh, the hospitals where we all worked, who, who needed the service to help transition their patients to home, um, we really didn't have a problem. Okay, yeah, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of like the perfect storm, huh? Yeah, which is why they, why the government blew it all up eventually. Okay, yeah, and I want to touch on that later as well. So, and you're, and at the time, you're still teaching. So, were you continuing to teach as well while you're doing this business? I did, yeah. So, teach, take care of patients. We, had, we, had, I had a full, I had a very big practice um, in pulmonary and critical care. Uh, it was academically based, but I mean, it, we, you know, it, it was seven days a week, <laughs> so, uh, and we taught and we did research. So, yeah. okay, full, full boat. Okay, and I know you mentioned um, that you were, you guys were seriously undercapitalized going in. So did that change quickly with the influx of customers, or was it pretty easy to get other physicians to invest with you guys? How how did that go? Right. So, you know, raising money in those days was a lot less systematic than it is now. And there were very few, many fewer options uh, available. Um, the VC world wasn't even really that well um, organized or, or developed at that time. So we mainly got capital infusions from individuals, uh, mostly physicians. Um, and then the rest of it was organic. So uh, we, we really had to focus on optimizing operations. So again, I had, to, I had to sort of shift mental gears and go, you know, how does all this stuff work and, and, and figure all that out. Uh, and I learned really quickly about the financial dynamics of business growth. That's something I, I think you never really sat down and figured it out that growth takes money, you know, <laughs> and money, you, it's usually money you have to spend before you make the next money. Um, you know, that's, not, that's one of those uh, business truisms that is really not intuitively obvious until you run a business and particularly one that begins growing really fast. 
but uh, I would say, say uh, once the word got out, it, we were mainly momentum driven. And uh, that's pretty fun. That's fun stuff. And what was the timeline on that momentum? Was it 12 miles, 18, I'd say, 24? Yeah, I'd say about a year when we, when we really got going. And um, it took us a little while because none of us knew what we were doing. <laughs> so we, we, had to, we had to get up the learning curve in a hurry. Okay, yeah, so it's, I mean, it sounds like I know a lot of times, you know, you have entrepreneurs start business and they think, oh, this just isn't going to happen. There was just the obstacles are just too big to overcome. But it doesn't, it doesn't sound like you guys had that, that kind of a problem. It sounds like you guys caught momentum pretty quickly early on in the process. And, and got <laughs> well, there is one funny story from the beginning. <clears throat> so the, um, the gentleman who called me up, who was the actual founder of the company, and sort of organized the docs to get together to do this. Uh, he really wasn't much of a business person. We, we raised enough seed. So we, we, you know, he wrote a business plan. We, we all kind of looked at it. We, we really know what we were looking at, but so we blessed <laughs> it off and, um, you know, and we raised what we thought was enough seed money from the original investors to last a year or so. But after three weeks, he called me up and he told me, Hey, we're out of money. I quit. <laughs> he literally said, what? "I'm going to the beach, and I could, and you could do whatever you want with the company." Are you serious? Wow. So uh, after I recovered, I'm sort of sitting there shocked, right? I'm going, what in the world am I going to do? You know. So um, I said, "Well, you know, at the very least, somebody has to go talk to the employees, right?" We we had like about I think three or four, maybe five employees. <laughs> so. Um, I went out to the office and I interviewed the staff and, and uh, one of the women there was from the domain. So she understood what we were really trying to do. She had a lot of street smarts and business sense, even if she had never really run a business. So I said, okay, you're gonna be the CEO. And I asked her, have you ever run a business before? And she said, no. And I said, well, that's all right, me neither. I said, uh, so, so I went to the bookstore, literally, you know, books lived in bookstores back then. And uh, I picked up about five books on running a small business and I would read a book and give it to her and we would do what the book said. <laughs> and, and it was actually the most fun I've ever had in a startup. We had a blast. And so your colleague did quit. Well, why did he quit? He just, so he just didn't want to he do it anymore? He got frustrated. He got frustrated that he spent all the money. <laughs> I, guess, <laughs> I guess, I don't know. I guess he, um, I don't know. He had he had this pot of money, and he went out and he he overspent on inventory, and he he went and got a fancy office instead of getting a warehouse, which is what we really needed. And he hired too many people, and he hired the wrong people, and he paid them too much, and I you know whatever I, you know. And anyway, he exhausted the entire bank account in three weeks. It was it was remarkable. <laughs> so did you have to buy him out, or you just took over where he left off? How did that work? Yeah, well, so I took over the operation and um, we did not buy him out. We, we let him hang around. It, it was all right. We had, <laughs> we, we had enough other folks. Okay. All right. So, yeah, and you talked about how the government came in and blew it up. So you guys are doing pretty well. You're chugging along and then the rules are changed or regulations. So what happened with that? What's, what's the story behind that? Yeah, so um, there was a congressman uh, named Fortney Stark from California, 
who uh, decided that the way to fight fraud and abuse in, in healthcare was to uh, not allow physicians to refer patients to companies in which they had any sort of interest, you know, either management or investment. I mean, fundamentally, initially what the law said was, you can either be a doctor or you can quit being a doctor and you can be a CEO or, you know, you can run a business, but you can't do both together. So um, that was a huge change because, so here's the, here's the positive aspect of that kind of activity. It, it, does, keep, it does keep physicians in that case from, um, you know, having this massive conflict of interest of sending people over to your own company and then getting paid by the government. I mean, that was, it was really a Medicare based idea. So uh, I get that part, but here's the down, here's the really downside. It's probably the unintended consequence of, of those rules was that you took the only people who had an interest in improving healthcare at the point of service and who also had the resources to do it. You took them off the field. They, they couldn't play in the game anymore. And that's the doctors. And it's been that way ever since. Now, over the years, uh, the Stark laws have been modified and so if you do certain, if you organize in certain ways, like you form an ACO or you, you do something that the government wants you to do, they waive the Stark laws. <laughs> so you can, you actually can participate, but it still is a very, in my mind, it's, it's one of the almost, it's a real damper on physician innovative input into, uh, into patient care. We're just now sort of getting over it. And uh, I think it's part of now what's driving, uh, you know, what we see now in the market, which is, you know, for the first time in 30 years, really, you know, we're seeing a blast of uh, medical innovation and medical startups and care delivery and devices and treatments and other things where physicians are, are fully engaged again, which, uh, which I'm pretty happy to see. Yeah, because I do see now where it looks like physicians are running businesses again. In fact, I've looked at, you know, acquiring some and some of them where you have to have a, a medical degree to, to purchase the business. So I guess they have, like you said, eased up on that a little bit. Well, it, dep it depends on the circumstance, right? Okay. So uh, you just have to, I mean, the, what started out off as a fairly simple prohibition law uh, and it's now like volumes and volumes and volumes of rules and exceptions and, and huh. safe harbors and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, highly regulated. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, so, so when that happened, um, how did you guys resolve the problem? I'm sure that had to be a shocker initially. So what did you do? What happened with your company when that, when those regulations came down? Yeah. Well, the doctor investors freaked, you know, because the, the uh, penalties were pretty severe. So um, they're really, so we were very disappointed, of course, because A, we were having a lot of fun and B, we were doing really well. <laughs> so so we, were, we were pretty disappointed, but um, it really wasn't, a, there really wasn't an option to, uh, to continue on like it was. So we, we sold it. Yeah, it was just fine. We did fine. Yes, you did pretty well on, on the exit. Sure. So who did you sell to? 
So we sold to uh, another a startup company that was uh, further along than we were uh, in home care, but it, sort of a more broad-based home care company uh, that was really a spinoff. So it was really a spinoff from the LifeMark uh, group. So LifeMark, a uh, little history here. LifeMark was the first publicly traded hospital company and uh, actually started in Houston, <laughs> interestingly. Um, so anyway, we, we sold off to some executives that spun out of there. Okay, and what, what year was that? That was... What year was that? Oh boy. Uh, I'm gonna say about the mid, somewhere in the mid eighties. I, I don't know, something like okay, that. Okay, mid eighties. So looking back on that, do you think that was a blessing in disguise as to where you are now and what you're working on? Uh, maybe. Uh, well, I don't know. It's just a <laughs> point in the journey. I don't. I don't know if it was a blessing or, or not. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think I would have done that for my life's work anyway, right? But uh, it was just a point when where it had to be resolved. Somebody okay. was making me resolve it. <laughs> And it seems like, I mean, I'm reading your story. It seems like you're always in the right place at the right time, because I see you, you also had an affiliation with Compaq that came into fruition. So how, how did that happen? I did. So um, so we, after the first company, we started another company and, and it had, a, it was in uh, two of my medical partners uh, and my practice partners were very much into occupational medicine. And um, so uh, briefly, the OSHA, OSHA was formed during the Nixon administration, <laughs> but they never got around to promulgating the standards and the rules for uh, more than 10 years. So anyway, here we are now, you know, more than 10 years later. And, and we, we saw my, my, partners who were interested in occupational medicine and occupational health um, decided they wanted to get into that business. So they turned to me and said, hey, why don't we start a business? So we did that and we, we, we were into all sorts of safety and, and surveillance and, and then we got into wellness and the largest smoking cessation company in the, in the city and, and so forth. And uh, Compaq was just starting up and uh, they were very forward-thinking in their human resources uh, programs and, and the way that, that in their sort of their uh, internal value proposition to their employees. I literally answered an ad in the paper for a medical director. <laughs> is really what happened. Compaq was pretty young at the time. Uh, they were still under a billion in revenues, uh, had just moved to what became their big campus in Houston. And um, people forget that Compaq was sort of like the Google of their day. They were doubling revenue every month or two and fastest growing company ever and that kind of stuff. Um, but they were very focused on taking care of their employees, which was, which was neat. So uh, my initial engagement was in health, health safety and wellness activities, help them set up their programs. And then moved on to working with their engineers to remove ergonomic stress from their assembly lines, which was great. And we were very proud over the years that I was there, the nearly zero injury rate that we had uh, in the assemblies. Um, 
my next assignment there was in the benefits group uh, who wanted to, they were early in wanting to uh, understand their utilization data and focus their healthcare spend more usefully. And then the real fun started when I fell into the product marketing group and uh, I spent most of my time over the years there participating in product design, marketing and sales support. Okay, and were you doing that as, as as a consultant role through your own entity or just as a, or as an employee? <laughs> yeah, I was a consultant. Okay. And that was, that was the second business resulting after the first one that you sold? No, that was just another, that was an extension of that occupational health company that we, we put together. Okay. So yeah, I understand so it was, was which oh, was sorry, really the second. I'm, I'm sorry, which was really the second business. Okay. So yeah, because I know there were businesses two and three, so I wanted to hear more about those after you sold the first one. Yeah. Okay, well, so the second one in the, in the compact um, uh, episode kind of went together. So like I was saying, uh, my, my partners wanted to start a a, a business uh, outside the practice for um, doing what came to be known as population health and uh, occupational health statistical analysis, all that kind of stuff. So uh, our idea was to be the go-to group for setting up OSHA compliance programs and, and for doing the screening and surveillance statistical analysis. Then uh, OSHA came along and made the ergonomic standard, which was, uh, Pretty amazing, and and we had the opportunity at that point to do what we really did in all of our companies, and over and over and over, which was to build our own software platforms to drive the internal operations and the internal processes. Case of the ergonomic standard, we were able to automate a lot of the analysis uh, that needed to be done in order to make the recommendations. That was kind of a move forward. We you, know, you have to. Have to kind of understand back then we, we really didn't have a video uh, that you could computerize in fact we we were working on that during the whole time um, then we added wellness and worksite healthcare eventually we integrated the worksite healthcare into existing insurance products and uh, again it was starting to become a monster relative to uh, the monster that ate the medical practice my my again my board investors were physicians and they just got to the point where they thought it was too distracting and so they wanted out so we ended up selling that entity as well but along the way i, I established my relationship with compact and um, i continued to do that for for 15 years or so okay all right and so then after 20 years of academia with um, seemingly a lot of profitable side hustles as well, you left academia and focused on turning around failing startups as CEO and or CEO of the Target. So how, how was that process? How, how was getting, how was that started getting started in that part of the business? Yeah, so uh, yeah, just to, I really was 10 years in academia and then 10 years in private practice It was really Okay. Uh, how that works. So I left. I left patient practice after twenty years, um, and um, when I when I left uh, patient practice, uh, truthfully, I didn't have a plan. 
<laughs> I really wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, <clears throat> but uh, it didn't take too long for so a couple of, of uh, friends of mine and I got together and we started. Uh, so you could call this a startup, although we never sold anything, but it was really in the realm of what was then called AI and what would still be called AI and decision support. And uh, the reason it had made a, a little bit of a move forward back then was um, compute power had become uh, robust enough to actually solve the Bayes theorem. <laughs> so, believe it or not, people couldn't use, people knew about Bayes, of course, since Bayes was alive. <clears throat> but uh, it was difficult to use because solving those polynomials is really hard. Um, so you, there wasn't enough compute power around to do it until, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, let's say. And um, so uh, we started that and um, it went well until 9-11 happened. So <laughs> that sort of, our, uh, our funding source went away. Uh, but in the meantime, I also had another company that was failing that the board had come to me and asked me to help take a look at it. It was a uh, company that was doing what, again, what we would call care management. So they knew about my prior experience with, with the respiratory company. <laughs> this is more in diabetes. And uh, so uh, that's how I got into that type of, of uh, interest and uh, was being pulled into these situations like this diabetes management company that was not doing well had all sorts of problems and, uh, you know, pulled in by the board to recapitalize it, reorganize it, reposition it in the market, do, do all that sort of thing. Okay, yeah, and, and that part I really wanted to dig into. So it seems you came, you became very proficient in raising capital and understand you also became an angel investor. Yes. So can, can you talk about the the steps that led to that and how difficult it was or how easy it was? <laughs> okay, well, if anybody tells you raising money on a, a startup, particularly a failing startup is easy, uh, let me, I like to talk to them. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, I, I would say raising money even, even then was less industrialized uh, than it became. So this was during the 90s for the most part when I got started doing this, these things. Um, and um, VCs were much more swashbuckling in, the, in those days. Uh, they didn't have as many systems and they didn't have their checkbox sheets yet and all that sort of stuff. And, there and, and the ability to raise money was way more limited. So you, you truly had to go East Coast, West Coast. And so you had to go to Wall Street or you had to go to Sand Hill Road, basically. I mean, those, mm -hmm. were, the, those were the places that were available beyond angel funding, right? So I, I could do I could do early startups and angel funding on a local basis. Um, you know, the usual networking and you know, drinking coffee and kissing babies and a lot of lunches with angels who have no idea what healthcare technology is. And uh, did that a lot. Um, you know, it's just sort of constant motion. Um, and, and I eventually found my way, got introductions to, to Wall Street and Sand Hill Road, just I always encourage people, I, it's, it's a, that was a, an experience that I think everybody ought to have. 
<clears throat> particularly if they have a Kevlar vest they can use. I mean, it's just, you take a beating pretty much every day. Yeah, know, it's, like a road, it's like a road show, right? I mean, it's just, you know, somebody's beating your, beating on you about something every day. Um, but on the other, but on, I would say I much preferred the East Coast uh, model because although it's, it's much more harsh, uh, they don't waste your time. <laughs> if they don't want, they don't have any interest in what you're doing. They just tell you, and you can move on. Which I actually came to uh, came to appreciate. Okay, so you prefer the the Wall Street boys to the to the Sand Hill Road boys? I did. Well, the the West Coast model was much more. You know, you get the you get a kid with you know who critiques your PowerPoint deck and. You have some tea and crumpets and you, you know, spend the afternoon and then they tell you, you're a very nice person, but we're not going to do any business with you. <laughs> it's like, you could have told me that four hours ago. I know you didn't like my PowerPoint. <clears throat> okay, very. And so what was the, um, what's the largest amount of money you've ever raised for a single project? Uh, well, I... So for a single project, well, so total project. Well, so let me just go back to single single raise. All right. So the size companies I was generally working with and the stage they were in, uh, usually relatively early stage. So I would say the the largest single raises I did for those companies were were ten million or so. Now you know if you if you did that you know more than once because the company needed additional money later, then you know the project may be two or three X that, mm -hmm. um, but not all at the same time, usually. So um, I basically, uh, I came to see raising money as uh, similar to sales, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> People buy and sell virtually anything. <laughs> so you can raise money on practically any kind of deal if you get in front of the right kind of people. So yeah, so for, so for people out there raising money, what, especially in the beginning, what, what piece of advice would you give them that would take them the furthest as far as, as far as accomplishing their capital goals? Well, I think the, you, what you just said is the most important thing is understanding what your capital goals are and what they should be and what they need to be. You know, some of that, of so, so there are various, uh, dimensions to that idea so one is is you know there's the what what does the company need to grow at the speed that you want to grow at or that you need to grow at to uh to uh, move into your market in a meaningful way so there's there's that piece of it and then there's the piece of companies that look like you to investors usually raise how much money you know they're there's sort of a, there is a totally a herd mentality. And, uh, you know, so, you know, this, the whole, the whole science of comps, uh, you know, call it a science in quotes, right, is, uh, you know, understanding how, what the market understands your needs to be. And then it's up to you to sort of create the interface between what you believe you truly need and what the market thinks you need to accomplish what you say your goals are. And I think that is the conversation that we tend to have. And I, th I think in the, in the beginning, um, it's what many entrepreneurs 
don't understand how the dance goes because it is kind of a dance, right? And, um, and I think sort of helping people uh, have the expectation of what to, of what to expect when you begin to engage these conversations, I think is is hugely helpful for them. Okay, so yeah, you you need to know your market and what the market allows, and again, what you think you need in alignment with that, basically. Yeah, and it may be a problem that needs to be solved, right? I mean, you may look at it and say, well, I need X amount of money and the market may look at you and say, well, you're only gonna get this much. <laughs> yeah. So you have to sort of go, okay, I'll take that much and then I'm gonna to have to figure out how to get to the rest of it, right? Mm, yeah. All right, and on the other side of that, what advice would you give to passive investors who might be on the other side of the table looking for businesses or other investments to put their capital to work? What advice would you give them when people are coming to them for money? Yep, so I've thought about this a lot. I've participated in this a lot. So uh, here are my basic rules. One is get beyond the pitch. So, uh, you know, I, I do not, and I advise people not to invest in concepts alone. Uh, uh, and I know there's a lot of concept pitching out there. I mean, that's, and people want you to invest based on simply the conceptual idea that, that this technology or this science or this invention or this creation or this business model is, is, is exceptionally good. So you have to do your homework. Um, a lot of times the technology and the science are spectacular, but it's not a business. So you have to know how money can be made uh, with this uh, organization. Can it be a viable business in all, the, in all the dimensions of what that means? So product and market and uh, technology and, uh, and uh, funding and you know, the basic building blocks of an execution, strategic execution. So I, I would say another thing is, is to, to work the flip side of why startups fail. So in my mind and in my experience, um, startups fail primarily because they don't have enough capital. They're, they move too slow to accomplish their pre-market milestones. Um, they don't get enough sales fast enough to be noticeable in their market. And there's a failure of execution. So team doesn't get it done or leadership. Um, and then I'd say the final piece is understand your own deal. You know, what is it that you're trying to accomplish by this investment? If, if you just want to put, throw some money down, uh, you know, and see if something good happens, have at it. If you want to try to de-risk it and understand the business that you're investing in and stay with it as a business and with the idea that there'll be a payday at some point for you, um, then you have to do a little more work. Okay. And um, I wanted to ask you this. So when people come to you, how important do you think their team is? So, I mean, say you get two totally opposite teams coming, coming to you with the exact same pitch, with the exact raise. How important is the team where you see one team has no experience or no team at all versus a very deep team with a deep bench. How, how important is that? 
Yeah, so that's extremely important in, in a couple of different ways. So uh, people uh, recently through the accelerator um, culture that we've developed uh, in this country and through a number of different publications like Lean Startup, another thing, pe people sort of take that literally like you're not supposed to spend any money. So I do, I do see people who are literally a single person team I would never invest in that. I just wouldn't do it. It's not ready. It's not ready to move. Uh, so I wouldn't do it. Uh, so the team's important. So then once you have a team, who's there, right? So I see a lot of teams with a lot of academia, a lot of like, degrees, a lot of this, a lot of that. Uh, that not impressive because at some point you have to execute the plan. So you got to have people who know how to build business, know how to scale business. And, uh, and know how to execute whatever strategic plan they have. So yes, totally, I do spend a lot of time looking at that because you know, lack, of, lack of strategic ex execution is one of the main reasons companies don't make it. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's one thing that's been drilled into me from my mentors as well, that you, you pretty much you have to have a team. If you're a one-man show, it's probably not going to happen to you, no matter how great your idea is, because you, like yeah. you say, you well, don't have anybody to help you execute it. Yeah, you don't have a company. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you. Exactly. So yeah, if I walk out of the door and get hit by a truck, then then where does that leave your money, right? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So Bob, let's do um, let's do a lightning round before we start winding things down now. Okay. So what book or books have greatly influenced your life <laughs> you know what uh i'm gonna have to like say that's too hard of a question for me <laughs> i i consume large i always have my whole life large amounts of fiction nonfiction, technical literature just about everything you think I'm, I'm a very curious person i can't think of a single book or or piece of information that you know greatly influenced my life one way or the other. I, I sort of have a tendency to keep moving. Um, I do have a current read. My current read is Children of the Ash and Elm, which is, uh, is an archeological study of the Vikings. Uh, now that does seem a little bit tangential, but one of, the, one of my um, intellectual pursuits, I, I like to understand how we got like we are. You know, how did our culture get like it is? How did, how did business get like it is? How did science get like it is? Where did we take the wrong turns? You know, where, what happened? What happened in history? So um, this is one of those books. The Vikings were hugely uh, influential in Northern European culture that subsequently came along. So uh, anyway, that's why I'm reading it. I'll check that. Who's the author of that one? Oh. Is the author good question? Hang on, I'll tell you real quick. Where's your the Ash and Elm? It's called uh, A History of the Vikings, Children of Ash and Elm, Neil Price. Neil Price, okay. All right, yeah, I'll have to check that one out. All right, and has how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Yeah, one of my favorite topics, actually. I spent a lot of time <clears throat> talking about failure. Um, so I just want to spend a second on that if I can. Sure. Um, 
I don't really think about it like that. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about it like that. I, I think I, I usually define failure more like non-success, you know, or an incomplete forward pass, right? Um, it's just uh, not everything works. So mm-hmm. uh, the only way humans learn is from failing or not knowing something and then learning it. Uh, it's, it's a little bit almost silly to say. It's a little bit of a tautology when you think about it to say that. But uh, if you already knew something, then you can't learn it, right? So right. you can reinforce it, but you can't learn it because you already knew it. Um, so you only learn when you, when you didn't know something or you fail at something. And so uh, I would like to offer that I've done a lot of learning in my career. Uh, <laughs> but there are... Um, and then I'm going to go philosophical on you here for a second. There are only, in my mind, there are only three elements that determine outcomes of human events. Circumstance, choice, and cosmic flow. So most people, I, the reason I went with the term cosmic flow, and I, one of the things that I didn't include in, in our prior discussion is I spent a lot of time doing management consulting and, and executive coaching. And I had to develop a concept of things Cosmic flow is really the stuff that happens. So I, I actually gave it a definition. It's the juxtaposition in time and space of people and events unknowable to us and uncontrollable by us. And, and that's just like, so here's a simple example. I'm walking down the street to the grocery store and I see you at the Whole Foods store. How, how did that happen? Why did that happen that way? How did you end up being there and I ended up being there at the same time? I don't know. I didn't control it. You didn't control it. We just happened to be there. Well, stuff like that happens all the time, right? <laughs> so, uh, but these are the things that determine outcomes and results. And if you sort of understand that and keep, keep the context around cir- circumstance, choice, and cosmic flow, it'll help helps you deal with failure uh, or what you may perceive as failure. Um, but at the more practical level, let me just say there are, here are a few things that have led to non-successes. Not enough capital, too early for the market to recognize the value of what we're doing. Uh, non-winnable legal positions. So I got beaten court a couple times, lost a company. Uh, bureaucratic fiat, you, your product can have death by fiat. You know, it could be government fiat. It can be bureaucratic fiat. Or you could just have the wrong people, the wrong team. Yeah, and again, to hit that point home again, all of those are learning experiences, right? So, yep. I think I think how we're how we're brought up in school, we're we're taught to avoid failure, and we're rewarded for for winning. But it, it maybe should be the exact opposite, where we should be rewarded for failure because you know you're trying and learning new things, but. I definitely think what society is kind of frowned upon. So a lot of people are even afraid to go out on a limb because I don't want to fail. Well, so it may be even a little more sinister than that, right? Which is we want you to know what we tell you to know. Mm-hmm. We don't want you to try the other things that you might not know or not or that you might fail at or appear to be failing at. Yeah, definitely. All right, good stuff. All right, so here's an, here's one of my favorites. So if you can have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? 
my favorite personal saying, all limitation is self-imposed. Good one, all limitations is self-imposed. All right, and what's a strange habit or a peculiar routine that you love? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, hmm. so I, well, I guess what I wanna know is strange to who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I think I probably have a lot of strange habits that I don't, I don't know our habits or that I love them or not. But what, what, what's an example of that sort? What were, what were you thinking of? I mean, it could be anything. Something like you like to, you like to eat beets when you get up at six a.m. in the morning, or just anything that you love to do that you've formed a habit around. It could be even be simple as just meditating every morning at. 4.30 a.m. Well, I mean, I do have my routine, right? I, I am an early riser. I, I, I get up, I work, and then I exercise, and then I get on with the day. So I don't know if that's a peculiar routine. I guess I always thought it was pretty normal. I've been doing it a long time. So. What time do you wake up? Um, well, when I was doing the uh, three jobs a day, I used to get up at four. Uh, now that I'm more mature, I get up at six. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I found a lot of the hard charging, very ambitious people get up around 4 a.m. I found that more and more as I talk to more and more different people. Yeah, I, so I will say this. Um, I, I don't consider, looking in retrospect, I don't consider getting up at 4 a.m. to be particularly normal. Uh, yeah, definitely not. Nor, or necessarily all that good of an idea. And sometimes you just, have, I mean, when I was, <laughs> when I was blowing and going, I, I just, I needed the time, right? I mean, I just, I needed to be up. So. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do that, you need to pretty much be in bed by 8 p.m. the day before, which is pretty hard, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, which I never was, right? So, right. I mean, literally, I, I'd say I sleep five hours a night. I still pretty much do that. Yeah. All right, so what are some, what are bad recommendations you hear in your day-to-day -day for people new to investing in entrepreneurship? Uh, okay, let's see. I do have a sort of a list of those. Let me think for a second. Okay, so, so some of the bad recommendations. Follow your passion. There's no such <laughs> thing as luck. Check out this great book on startups. Join another accelerator. Get an MBA. I have a deal I want you to see. You need to decide by the end of business today. <laughs> That's my list. <laughs> oh yeah, those are some good ones. Yeah, especially <laughs> to get an MBA, yeah. <laughs> All right, and in the last five years, so of course we, are, we, I mean, I hear more and more people need to be better at saying no to things, especially as the more, the more and more successful you are, or the more, the farther you're going in your career, the more opportunities come to you. So what have you become better at saying no to, if anything? Um, I would say I've always been good at saying no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I've gotten better. So I, I also am curious and I'm also, I, I do love a good deal. There's just no question about it. So I. I think I've gotten much more selective. I've created much more of an ability to sift, sift through investments and reject the ones that are not really in my sweet spot of interest or 
uh, or or my you know my own investment uh, you know models. Yeah. So just to touch on that real quickly. So deal flow. I heard um, Tim Ferriss talking about how when he first started getting into um, angel investing, he just started getting overwhelmed with just so many deals coming into his email box or from a friend or from a colleague. So in your deal flow, how many deals would you say, how many deals would you say get presented to you on a weekly basis? And how do you filter those? Hmm, good question. Um, I'm gonna say right now, um, maybe about four or five a week. Okay. Um, so not overwhelming, pretty, pretty easy to keep up with that. I, so my first experience with massive deal flow was uh, back in the late nineties when I was a compact and we were getting about 50 deals a week at that point. Cause we were, you know, it was in the frenzy of the 99, 2000 period and startups. In fact, I haven't seen as many startups in healthcare as we have right now uh, as uh, since then. So it's been quite a spell of, of not that much activity, but now it's really, really, really picked up. Uh, I don't, I don't take everything. So I only, I only want to look at, um, I, I only want to look at digital health, uh, opportunities and some, some device opportunities. And okay. that's about it. I don't, so, I mean, I have fairly, a fairly narrow, interest at this point. Okay, so I guess it's good to have, be very clear about the type of deals you're interested in so you aren't overwhelmed with just everything all over the place coming across your desk. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's the only way you can do it. I think it's the only way you can do it. You kind of have to know what your own goals are. You know, what are you trying to accomplish? And, yeah, because you hear so much, even, I mean, some of the training I've done, you hear so much about you need to have deal flow, you need to have deal flow. But I mean, if I'm getting 50 deals a week, how do you even start to sift through those to see what's going to work. It seems just like unmanageable unless you, unless you can afford to pay a team to go through those for you, so. Exactly. Well, I think that, that I do think there's an opportunity for larger operations to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, interact with pe other people who are experienced at looking at significant deal flow and helping to set up those mechanisms by which you uh, filter down to the things that you really want to spend some time looking at. Mm -hmm. And then, and then what do you look at? So how do you know what that is? And then, you know, how do you know what to look at once you've filtered, you, you, you've taken it down to the, to the top 10 or the top five. Okay. All right. And last one. So when you're feeling, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? So I do a lot of the usual things. I work out, I read something not related to what's happening. Um, I put it back and come down later. So I, I actually have what I call the Dr. Bob's 48 hour rule. <laughs> and uh, what this says is, is uh, as opposed to healthcare or medicine, um, there's almost nothing in business that can't wait <laughs> for a couple of days. So, um, the 48 hour rule happened the first time I was sued. I was served papers in a business and uh, they always come on Friday nights, you know, like the, the little deputy dude comes with the papers at 530 to your office and um, you can't do anything, right? I mean, the lawyer's already in the, on his boat and uh, you know, you can't do anything for two days. 
So it it's very upsetting, you know, when this, when this happens. And, uh, but I couldn't do anything for two days. And then by Monday, I was rational. I was settled down. I had a plan. I knew what I was going to do. Got the lawyer and, and on we go. So I sort of said anything that causes you emotion, really strong emotion in business, put it down for 48 hours and then pick it up. Okay, very, very good advice. All right, well, Dr. Bob, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really enjoyed this session. Um, before we hop off, if anybody needs to get in touch with you about collaborations or questions, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, the best way is to uh, is my email, which is bob at greenroomtx.com. Okay. All right, perfect. All right, well, Bob, you have a nice evening. I'll be talking to you again soon, I'm sure. Again, thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back soon. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. All right, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.